The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar cell and module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar's U.S. facility operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week, offering state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality. Mission Solar's modules provide world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. Mission Solar is proud to be part of America's booming solar industry. To find out more about its cells and modules, visit missionsolar.com. And one quick note before we begin, we recorded this episode on Friday, October 28th, and we're releasing it on Monday the 31st, so you'll hear some slightly dated references, but you get the picture. And now on to the show. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week's show is all about making stuff, or more precisely, the difficulties in making hardware. Dreaming, designing, building, and deploying new kinds of hardware is tough in any business. But in the energy business, where change comes particularly slow, developing new tech is an especially hellacious undertaking. But the companies that do succeed could become the next multi-billion dollar energy behemoths. All of our segments tie together into this theme in some way. We'll start off by talking with Emily Riker, the CEO of Greentown Labs, a hardware-specific cleantech incubator based here in the Boston area. We'll talk about where entrepreneurs tackling this space are finding the financial and human capital to get them to scale. Then we'll turn to the ongoing saga of Solar City. The company made a big bet on solar manufacturing last year, and new developments suggest that decision to make its own solar panels was the wrong one. Finally, the solar industry in general is undergoing a lot of turmoil, particularly in manufacturing. We'll broaden the discussion to talk about why solar producers are struggling and why the solar industry may be facing a bloodbath in 2017. I'm joined as always by Catherine Hamilton, who is a partner with 38 North Solutions in Washington, D.C. Hey, Catherine. Hi, how are you? Excellent. And Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital. He comes to us from New York City. Hey, Jigger. Hey, Stephen. On the line with us from Somerville, Massachusetts, in fact, right around the corner from where I am sitting in my home studio, is Emily Reichert, the CEO of Greentown Labs. Greentown is the largest incubator of clean energy startups in the country, and it has a particular focus on companies that are picking up tools and tinkering with the next generation of energy tech. Hey, Emily, how are you? Doing great. So um, thanks for, for joining us. I was at your space recently checking it out for the first time. Very impressive. It's it's located in this old industrial site in Somerville, and it features a co-working space and an event space. But it's also got this massive warehouse-like space for startups there to like build whatever it is they're building. You've got a machine shop. You've got small testing facilities. So how is this this different from the way other incubators in clean tech or otherwise are set up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you mentioned, we are the largest clean tech incubator in the United States. We support 50-plus companies at this point um, who have about 500 jobs all among them, and that means in one particular day we might have up to 185 folks in the incubator. Incubator itself is about 40,000 square feet, and of that, more than 20,000 is laboratory space. And the laboratory space is really key to both what we offer as well as key to the needs of clean tech hardware startup entrepreneurs. Just for example, we were founded by entrepreneurs. 
uh, four folks, four guys really, that um, had companies, three of whom were from MIT, and they needed a place to build prototypes. Once they graduated from the university, they didn't have access to the labs anymore. So they found a warehouse in East Cambridge that lasted about four months before that building was getting knocked down to build a biotech building, and then moved to a basement, uh, another kind of warehouse factory building down in South Boston, and that was before the South Boston real estate market is what it is today, which is wild and crazy. But at that time, you could get space at $8 to $12 a square foot, and that's where Greentown Labs found its first real home. At that point, uh, the organization grew from four, five companies who were all building clean tech hardware prototypes to nine and 15. About that time, I came on board. The Boston real estate market was growing out of us as it was getting hot. We were growing out of that building, and that was what moved us to Somerville with the support of the mayor of Somerville, Joe Curtitoni and uh, a lot of other supporters uh, that came with us. We brought 25 companies, started out in Somerville, and uh, these companies uh, you know, really are doing all kinds of different clean technology projects. Uh, many are related to energy. Um, they're really kind of core energy, so you've got energy storage, distribution, um, energy efficiency, but then you've got folks that are working in IoT, robotics, um, you know, agriculture applications, water efficiency, uh, and water use applications. So this kind of group, this set of people that is all working in the same building has some commonalities, some like-mindedness that makes them naturally a great community. And that was true from the first four uh, entrepreneurs and companies that were at Greentown Labs to who we are today. And this culture of community is really what makes Greentown Labs a very different place than I think you find in a typical incubator. And, and, now, you're expanding this, culture. and now you're expanding yeah. the space in a big way. What does that say about the pent-up demand for this kind of resource for, for entrepreneurs? You know, this, this uh, you've got like testing facilities, you've got the machine shop, you've got all sorts of tools there that are not available at other incubators around the country. And, um, you know, entrepreneurs are kind of flocking there because they realize it's unique. Is there a lot of pent-up demand for this kind of service? I think there absolutely is pent-up demand for this kind of service. Um, there aren't really a lot of incubators that do have that laboratory space in addition to office space. So typically you think of an incubator, you think, ah, I'm going to go somewhere and type at a desk. But if you're building a high-altitude wind turbine or you're building special sensors for the home to help you understand your energy efficiency, uh, that's not going to cut it, right? You need some place to bend metal, make noise, get dirty. And this is what Greentown Labs has been able to offer from the very start. And that's what we find these entrepreneurs need. And they don't need a lot of space necessarily. At the beginning, they may only need 100 square feet and access to the machine shop. Later on, maybe they need 500 square feet as their team grows. And eventually they may need a thousand square feet as they set up the very early, um, you know, the very early part of their manufacturing operations so that they can make a hundred or a thousand products as they begin to test these in a real world, world environment. And that's what gets them to the point when they can raise that series A round of investment that allows them to jump out of the incubator and into their own space elsewhere. But I'd say it very much is 
a need of clean technology companies. You're usually making physical things. And if you can save the time, the money, the energy that comes with being able to share resources and tools and knowledge within a community, that adds a lot of value and helps companies move faster and further and more efficiently. So, you know, I think that one of the things that I find fascinating is that you guys are really focused on hardware. And as you know, there's a lot of, you know, with some of your venture capital background, there's a lot of um, arguing in the space right now as to whether hardware companies really can um, get to the finish line if they're, you know, if they're real breakthroughs. Um, you know, the incremental technologies on tracker, trackers for solar, et cetera, works, but for, you know, real breakthroughs like some of the cement companies you have or um, remote renewable energy companies or, or demand response companies, et cetera, are more difficult. Um, I don't know. What do you? What's your take on the venture capital battle on you know this hardware side? Well, I have to say my perspective is that we need to find ways to fund companies other than venture capital, and that venture capital is not the answer when you're talking about clean technology. It just isn't, and I think we can try to force fit it. But if you need returns in three to five years, and you you know have a set pattern that you need to make work at a certain X, it's just not the right fit. And so what I'm excited about is all the different ways that startups and organizations like ours are going out and experimenting to identify new models that might work. Um, we do a lot of focused work with corporate strategic partners as a way for startups to get key essential gaps in the, their development uh, paid for, like, for example, with pilot studies or demonstrations that can be done in conjunction with a corporation that might be down the road interested in investing and or uh, partnering or being a customer. Um, we're also seeing some interesting things happen in terms of philanthropic capital. Uh, there's the Prime Coalition that's looking at new ways to pull uh, capital out of foundations that in ways it's not been used before to fund early stage energy technology. You've got the Breakthrough Energy Coalition, lots of different interesting models going on in terms of government funding. There's getting to revenue. Um, there are lots of different pathways, and I think the, really the onus is on us as an industry to figure out how to be creative and flexible and identify ways to work around the VC model, not to be stuck in the mindset that this is the only way it's going to work. And Emily, it sounds like, I mean, you guys are real leaders in this and you've been doing this for a long time, but there are other incubators out there and it seems that collectively you all are starting to work together on how do we share the knowledge, how do we share all these different new ways to build our businesses and that it's become quite a rich and vibrant community. Yeah, actually it's, uh, it's a really awesome thing to be a part of. I think that there is so much learning that's going on right now. And it's not just all happening in the Boston area. As much as we think our ecosystem rocks, uh, it's actually true that there are many awesome ecosystems across this country. And Greentown Labs works in a network called the Incubate Energy Network, with the, which the Department of Energy set up a couple years ago. And that connects us to 10 of the top incubators and accelerator programs in the nation. We meet up in person twice a year we have conference calls in between, and there's lots of learning and sharing that goes on between us in Boston, folks in New York, Chicago, Texas, and California and Oregon. All of these 
all of us have slightly different models. And I think that's maybe what makes it work is that you have to identify really what works in your own context and different areas have different strengths. And really it's all about maximizing around your particular strengths. So in Boston, for example, we're great at identifying and um, helping the very early stage entrepreneurs, the ones that are coming out of MIT and Harvard, because we're like a mile away from them and there's continuous flow of those. But you know, when you're in Detroit, uh, maybe you want to bring entrepreneurs who are working on vehicle technology to you and do really amazing demonstration studies that no one else would be able to afford to do on their own as a startup. And in Oregon, maybe you have a very unique partnership um, with the state government that allows you statewide to be providing entrepreneurial services to uh, companies that are located in various regions all over the, the state. So it, it really, you gotta focus on what it is that your particular region can do really well and develop the offering that's gonna help clean technology startups really work and thrive in that region. And then we also have, provide landing pads to each other. You know, we have one-on-one -on -one agreements that also are as part of this network. If I have a company that wants to go to Silicon Valley and raise money or go to New York and raise money, they have a home in another incubator. So that's also very valuable to help our entrepreneurs put money where it makes sense to put money, which is into their hardware and into their people and not into travel and, you know, cost of renting office space. Yeah, so one of the things that I had really interesting an interest in is it does seem like MIT and other universities have these sort of clean tech challenges and sort of competitions, et cetera. And I'm trying to figure out how well those competitions work with incubators. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I can tell you exactly how it works in Boston. I, I'm not sure I can speak for the entire um, nation here, but I have socialized this model with enough folks that I think it resonates in, in various quarters. So what we typically see is companies come out of university labs. And so someone has a technology that they believe an application of that technology can uh, make a difference in, you know, in a clean energy related product or clean tech product. So what do they do? They typically, you know, say this is a good idea. What can we do with it? Often they'll enter an MIT clean energy prize or another type of clean energy prize. There are, I think, 10 or 12 of them across the country now. Um, Rice University has a great one as well, as does Caltech. That's great. And what they do there is really get the idea out of the lab and into a business plan. But they're not done. Typically, what the, the winners of those competitions really need to take the next step, which is to go through an accelerator program. And an accelerator program will take that idea, that very early stage business plan, from that point to start building a team, to bring a, a set of advisors around that team, to take them to the point where they're ready to raise some seed capital. Now at that point, once they raise seed capital, that's when they're ready for an incubator. And the incubator is really a place where you come in, you continue to build the team, you're testing a prototype, which usually starts with a lab bench scale prototype. Um, you're testing it, you're iterating on it, you're iterating on it, you're making the first 10, 100,000 of your products and then trying to test those in a real world environment. And you can do all of that in an incubator, um, like the one that we've talked about, Greentown Labs today. 
And you really exit the incubator when you get to the Series A round of investment or equivalent, you know, several million dollars, somewhere usually between five and 15, and then you're out ready to be on your own as a, as a company. So Emily, one of the subjects that is, of course, near and dear to me is public policy. And when I talk to folks in incubators, you know, a, a lot of times people are developing something and there's a bit of a vacuum where public policy is concerned. So there's not necessarily a connection when an entrepreneur is thinking about how they're going to market their technology as to what the barriers or opportunities are uh, in public policy. So I would love to hear a little bit more about how you um, make sure that the companies at Greentown are really informed and understand how to use public policy to the benefit of their companies. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I have to say on that one, I don't think that um, we've particularly cracked the code. I can tell you uh, what we're doing in terms of making public policy, um, you know, more real and uh, uh, more in the face of our entrepreneurs. So first, um, we have a kind of continuous stream of uh, folks that are in elected office come through to ask for input from our entrepreneurs and help them to, you know, communicate what it is, what's what's um, a challenge right now for them. And so we get a lot of these kind of roundtable discussions where the uh, political, it can be a political figure, it also could be a head of a particular agency who comes in and solicits feedback and advice and knowledge from interacting with our entrepreneurs. It doesn't tend to be very targeted. It tends to be more uh, just kind of you know general business items, um, such as you know getting through a regulatory process faster. Uh, but I think that at the ground level is kind of what we need to do more of. Um, the second thing that we do is have people come in from the outside and give uh, lectures and seminars on various policy topics just to keep our entrepreneurs up to date, at least at the state level of what's going on and when we can the federal level. So I wouldn't say we've cracked the code on that, but we do try to keep people informed and you know help them when they need to connect to the right officials. You know, for example, we've connected people with folks in the EPA when that's necessary. Um, we certainly have an open channel to the DOE and we, we have open channels to pretty much all of the relevant uh, organizations in the Massachusetts state government. I want to talk about something that you alluded to earlier, and that is mm -hmm. partnering with corporate strategics. And it's something that you've really focused on in bringing in some of the big corporate partners. Um, I think having a company like GE now moving to Boston opens up a lot of very interesting opportunities. You've got a an oil major like Shell that has a skunk works project within Greentown and has its own testing facility and can learn from these entrepreneurs. So this is um, a good facility for some of those big companies that kind of want to know what's on the cutting edge. But there are also some drawbacks for entrepreneurs who want to work with corporate strategics. Um, you know, they're, they're, they can be slow. Uh, they might misunderstand the opportunity, but they also offer this enormous potential to scale. So how do you view that potential of working with big corporate partners? And are there limitations that you caution entrepreneurs about? Yeah, um that's a really good question, and this is something that we've thought a lot about. In fact, we have a whole program around trying to make the connections more efficient and effective between startup companies in the clean tech space and relevant 
um, major corporations who are looking for new technology. You know, just like you mentioned, it, the timescales at which these two move are very different, right? Um, the, the corporates can take a year or more to make a decision, and there are multi-levels of management making those decisions, and so it just takes time. The startup is a completely different company in six months. So how do those two you know, possibly um, overlap with each other enough to make something happen? So that's something we've we've really struggled with and then tried to address in the program I mentioned. And what that's all about is really helping startups and strategics to interact with each other on a regular basis over a six-month period in an accelerator-type format. And so we have workshops where we work with the startups on understanding how to navigate a giant corporation. So it's really not about what you say to the technical guy, because the technical guy doesn't necessarily have any pool in the decision-making structure. Um, it's not necessarily what you say to the VC guy, because the VC guy perhaps uh, needs to convince a business unit head to actually take your product into, um, you know, into consideration. And so helping uh, startups navigate that structure, um, the timelines, and making complex sales are all things that we work on in this program. And on the corporate side, there's also a lot of learning, right? And we don't necessarily always say it this way, but uh, working with startups is not the easiest thing, right? Um, they change their mind. Um, they are not always ready when they say they're going to be ready. They meet milestones most of the time, but sometimes things can change 180 degrees from the last time you talk to them. And that can be really frustrating for a corporation that needs to be reporting out on a, you know, on a regular basis how this relationship is going. And so there's really risk um, and opportunity on both sides. And so, you know, we found that if you can just get these people in the same room for, you know, a, a time period, like even six months, you can make good things happen, outcomes happen, even if the outcome is, no, it doesn't make sense for us to partner. The outcome could be we should do a pilot study as a next step. The outcome could be we should license this technology. It could be we're interested in investment. But you've got to bring people together on a, a mutual time scale that works in order to push anything forward and also have the two speak the same language and understand each other. So that's, that's kind of what we work on in our Greentown Launch Program at, at Greentown Labs. One question I had was around business model. I mean, some of the incubators out there, and whether it's Y Combinator or others, actually, you know, take an equity stake, albeit a very small one, in their companies. Have you guys thought of that? Yeah. So, Greentown Labs at this time does not take equity stake in its companies, and and that's honestly for the simple reason we started out that way because we were founded by entrepreneurs, and those entrepreneurs did not want to give up equity in their companies. And we thought about it um, later on, but you know, the honest truth is that, again, it doesn't really fit the VC model um, where you would need to get that money back out in three to five years for most of the companies that we support. They're going to have a lot of different pathways, and the pathway may not be an IPO where we get all that money back. Um, the pathway may be the way to scale the product. It makes sense for them to partner with a large corporation. And then the X is just not as big and it's longer to get. So I think the way to think about this um, is actually to think about ways that you can support startups that in critical gap 
phases where they need funding. For example, if we were to do any kind of funding uh, program, whether it be grants or uh, some other type of fund, what we would be looking to do is identify a key gap. So that might be, how do we get a pilot fund study funded so that this company can match up with an investor? Uh, how do we fund something that is really going to make a critical difference? And maybe that's less money um, than you might you know, have originally been asking for. But I think what we're trying to do is be very targeted. So we don't take equity at this time, and I don't really see that in our near future. You know, the, the third thing, and probably the reason that we haven't done this as well, is that a lot of our companies go through these top accelerator programs before they get to us. So they might go through Y Combinator. They might go through Techstars. Some of them went for, through the Surge Accelerator. In each case, they've given up equity. And so by the time they get to us, they may have given up equity twice or three times already. And so if we're asking again, you know, I, I just don't want to cut out the top level companies because they feel like they don't want to give up any more of their companies by joining us. Emily, I know you have to love all your children the same, but tell us about some of your favorite success stories. I'd love to hear some folks that have really succeeded going through your lab. Yeah, so in total, um, our companies have raised now over $190 million. In terms of particular success stories, I think a couple that I'd highlight, and they're successes for very different reasons, um, would be um, one, Alteros Energies, who is creating a high-altitude wind turbine. Um, basically, the winds are constant when you get to certain altitude. And at that point, you basically can put a wind turbine up at that certain height, have a tether back down to a base station, and generate power. And this is critical in a situation such as a disaster situation where you need power fast. You just roll a base station in, have this tethered helium balloon with a turbine in it, um, get up in the sky, and you basically got energy and kind of an instant cell phone tower as well. So that's a company called Alteros Energies out of MIT. Another recent one um, is Sense Labs, and that company has just raised uh, $14 million from a variety of different investors. Now, those folks are doing something that is based on originally voice recognition technology, but they've spun it into an energy application where they're helping you to understand all the different electrical signals that are happening in your home and piece out where is it that you are actually uh, you know, using electricity, what appliances, what activities, what behaviors. And it gives you more information to be able to make smart choices about uh, what you're doing in terms of your own personal energy efficiency. There are a lot of different types of success, and we've been very successful at having companies be able to raise uh, you know, various rounds of Series A investments. So, about 12 Series A's within the last couple of years, but we've also had some fairly significant uh, government contracts as well. So I want to finish off with some of your background. You have a PhD in physical chemistry, so this kind of work is in your DNA. You also have an MBA, so you're in this unique position of getting your hands dirty with research, but also figuring out how to help scale new tech commercially. Um, you also have a little bit of background in venture capital, 
but before you went to Greentown Labs, but you decided you didn't like that space. Why didn't you like venture capital? And how does your background in physical chemistry and your MBA kind of uniquely position you to get involved with these companies and help mentor them to reach new levels of scale? Having spent as much time in academia as I did, and I, uh, you know, I always joke that like I didn't leave school till I was 27, and so I have a, a very uh, long uh, history with being in school, and then I went back for the MBA. So um, I get the academic environment, and I think that's important for understanding these entrepreneurs who are spinning their companies out of a place like MIT or Harvard or wherever it is that the company's coming out of, um, you know, especially because I understand how a technical person thinks. And, you know, often you see early stage companies get stuck because there's a technical founder and there isn't yet a business founder and the technical founder thinks they can do everything. And so I can kind of get into that mindset and understand how they're thinking about it. And I think that that actually helps me be able to, to make matches happen between good technical and business people, but also to be able to kind of communicate on a broader scale what is important about this company and what they're doing, um, you know, that would make a good match between these different members of the team. So I think that that is, um, you know, definitely an advantage to, to be able to understand that mindset. When I did the MBA at Sloan, my sole goal in life was to um, really get kind of the entrepreneurial technology understanding and, you know, frankly, the language under my belt. Um, I had been doing a career for a very long time as a scientist. And as a scientist, you don't learn words like series A round of investment or taking equity or any of these things. So in order to in really exist in the environment that I'm in now, that was really critical just to kind of take a crash course in language and thinking like an entrepreneur and thinking about these different structures that you need to know about in order to successfully you know, run a company, think about strategy, et cetera. Um, in terms of venture capital, um, I just think that there are other models, especially for clean technology, that we should be exploring that may be better than what has been a model that has worked for other industries. I think that clean technology is a different, very different industry. It's just many, many more different um, you know, things that we are trying to accomplish, different regulatory environments. And I think it's going to be hard to solve with just one model. And so I'm really excited to be thinking about, you know, how do we explore and be flexible and be creative about how we get all these very cool world-changing technologies to market. Emily Riker is the CEO of Greentown Labs, a hardware-specific incubator and accelerator based in Somerville, Massachusetts. Emily, thanks very much. You're so welcome. Moving on now, we'll go to Solar City. Many of you may remember back a couple of years ago now when we had Solar City CEO Lyndon Rive on the show, and it was a special moment in time because the company had recently acquired a racking company called Zep Solar and had just announced the acquisition of the high-efficiency solar startup Salevo for $168 million. Solar City wanted to be a manufacturer and not just a bit player. It wanted to take Salevo's technology and build a one gigawatt production plant right here in the US, in Buffalo, New York. 
Rive proclaimed that SolarCity would be the most vertically integrated solar company in the world. He also predicted there wouldn't be enough modules to meet demand by the time the facility came online in 2017. And I know Jigger expressed uh, skepticism about both of those things at the time. But there's been a curious wrinkle in that story. Just last week, Tesla, not SolarCity, but Tesla, said it was planning to bring in Panasonic as a partner in Buffalo. So if Tesla ends up acquiring SolarCity, Panasonic says it will produce cells and modules there. And that begs the question, what happened to Salebo's technology? Is SolarCity abandoning it altogether? The company has been mum. And there's this much bigger question, which we'll explore here and a little bit later in our next segment. As oversupply in the solar industry crushes manufacturers, was SolarCity's decision to get into production a financial disaster in the making? Details are scarce, Jigger, but how do you interpret the decision to bring Panasonic in as a producer in Buffalo? Like, I guess we're all trying to figure out if they're writing off Salevo entirely or trying to mesh their somewhat similar heterojunction PV technologies together in some way. Well, I mean, I think the first piece of this is, what the hell? Like, I mean, totally. this is like this is basically like 101. Like, I think what I asked Lyndon on the podcast last time was, why don't you bring in a professional manufacturing partner to help you like your cousin did when they brought in Panasonic for um, the Gigafactory? And he and I think his response was, Salevo is an experienced manufacturing team. Really? Like, why wouldn't you have partnered with Canadian Solar or Trina or whatever? I think this is a last-ditch effort to save the plant. And my sense is, is that, like, you know, Elon knows Panasonic well, and so, like, that was the only partner he could cajole into coming into the plant at this moment. Had had they asked somebody two years earlier, they probably would have gotten more takers. But in this case, I think Elon leaned on Panasonic to help him save the plant. Aren't the components of Salevo and Panasonic cells not completely dissimilar? Can't they somehow get the best of each to make something that's really more excellent than either one alone? I guarantee you they have no idea. I don't think anyone has idea. I don't even think Panasonic has any idea. I think Panasonic is like, we want to salvage the relationship here, you know, like, and like help like Elon out of a jam. And so we'll say yes. And then we're sending in our best engineers now to figure it all out. Well, they both have, you know, uh, Panasonic has been manufacturing this hit module uh, and sell for a while. And there are some similarities uh, in this heterojunction cell that Salevo is making. And so there are people who think that this is a good partnership and that Panasonic is going to come in and just like, help Salevo out because they've clearly had technical difficulties. But Panasonic has been manufacturing these cells and modules. For I mean, like... I was working with Panasonic back in the 90s. So, I mean, they've been manufacturing solar for a very long time. But I'm just saying that, like, I think you guys... For like six or seven years. And the theory is that, well, like... Well, six or seven months when it actually comes to real mass <laughs> manufacturing. Everything else was in the lab. Like, look, I mean, I'm just serious. Like, even if a technology works beautifully... Getting it to like work on a mass manufacturing skill is an entirely different set of skills. And the fact that they lost two years here, like I think you guys are reading way too much into this on the technology side. This was not a thoughtful effort where they interviewed 75 different partners, looked at all the technologies, figured out which was compatible. This was Elon calling up Panasonic and said, I really need you to bail me out on this. There are a lot of technological similarities here. So clearly Panasonic was like the best of all possible possible partners, not just 
a go-to bailout. I mean, you could have, like, I don't think that most of the Salevo manufacturing equipment was even ordered. So it could have easily been, hey, we have an empty shell here. Why don't you just hire, you know, like Trina and just have them build another factory there? And forget the technology. Just wipe out whatever's there, reuse whatever's available available to be reused, and just make mass manufactured panels for Solar City's residential product, right? I mean, they could have gone many different ways, right? I just think that they probably did make the call to Trina, and Trina probably said no. No, but they've been partnering with Panasonic on the Giger factory, so they already have been working with them on cells and modules, and I think this will help all of these work better with the Powerwall and Powerpack and their car and the, the whole vision that Elon has. It seems like this is a kind of a, a logical next step. I agree with Catherine in a way, right? Like I think that it is logical that they would partner with Panasonic because of all the other work they've done together, but I'm also kind of, I also believe that there was a lot of hubris in what they try to do with Salevo and that they are just try, trying a last-ditch effort to save uh, face on this. I mean, particularly in the face of module prices going to 40 cents a watt right now. Like they were 40 cents a watt in September. They're at like 35 cents a watt now, I'm hearing. It's right. Crazy. I mean, it's just like Salevo's probably barely breaking the dollar per watt barrier. And so it's just one of those weird things where I think everyone is just like this is my beef, like moving away from Solar City on this, this is my beef writ large. This notion that Sun Edison could make panels was ridiculous. The notion that like all of these companies can actually vertically integrate. When you look at what's happening with First Solar and SunPower right now, their stock price is getting destroyed because they're not good at development. They're great at EPC, they're great at doing many like manufacturing. But when you ask them, are you best in class in developing a utility scale project? The answer is no, we're not that great at actually starting from whole cloth, which is why First Solar has bought most of their projects. SunPower has had some better success there. But you just find that this there is a constant, constant drumbeat towards vertical integration, which I find has failed for a decade or more. And everyone keeps bringing it up like it's a new idea. Well, uh, you know, you I know you've been criticizing the vertical integration model for quite a while, and now it's pretty clear with SolarCity's experience, they're burning cash like crazy. Um, Lyndon Rive and uh, Elon Musk's prediction that there wouldn't be enough solar modules in 2017 to meet demand is clearly not the case. Um, we are awash in solar modules around the world. Like you said, you know, we're hitting in the mid uh, you know, 35 cents a watt. We're going to be down around 30 cents a watt by the end of the year, probably. Companies are tripping over themselves to sell their modules. And Solar City is coming into this market at the worst possible time. Yeah, look, I, I'm, I just want to separate these things a little bit, right? Manufacturing excellence and predicting when you're actually going to have um, uh, a shortage of panels are two different things, right? You and I both know that there are companies who really focus on manufacturing excellence, like First Solar and SunPower. Great. Separately, there are lots of regulatory reasons for why people mess up the prediction process of when there's going to be a shortage of modules, right? Separate point, which happens because there's a new leader in town, China's up, China's down, India's up, India's down, all sorts of reasons, right? But And I think the other point around residential is also something that's a separate point. Like, if Solar City wanted to greatly increase residential sales, I think they could. I think over the last year, they've been trying to stem the bleeding and get to profitability, and so they've, buy, they've been buying less leads. I don't think Elon has actually like launched a big product push between the Model 3 and the synergy between that and uh, 
and residential solar, because I think a lot of the Model 3 buyers are going to want to power their cars with solar. So I think there's a lot of positive news on the horizon between Tesla and Solar City. So I don't think this is a bash Solar City segment. I think it's really about saying that vertical integration rarely, if ever, works. And then separately, I think Solar City needs to focus on what it does best, which is figuring out how to grow the residential market in the United States, which I think we still can get to one in seven homes, which is another nine million homes in the U.S. with solar on it over the next five years and match the level of penetration that Australia hit. I think we can do that, but I think it's going to require our best and brightest minds to focus on sales and marketing. Well, and I hope that whatever happens with that plant, that someone ends up doing solar there because that's great jobs and tax base for a part of the country that needs it. And you know, if Panasonic does it, that's great. Then we'll have more options for solar panels. Well, I think New York officials are hoping so because they're investing a, a $225 million into the facility and Solar City has said that they're going to spend $750 million in the region uh, as it scales the facility up. So there were a lot of promises made here. Now, I'm trying to understand the bullish case for Solar City here because I don't want this to be just a bash Solar City segment, even though this is clearly like pretty sketchy news. Um, Tesla is going to unveil its solar roof tonight. Uh, we're recording on Friday. The podcast will not be released until the following week. But we should mention that Tesla is going to be releasing its solar roof tonight. So, you know, Tesla had a pretty decent quarter last quarter. Um, they are clearly developing products with significant demand. The, who knows what this solar roof is going to look like? I guess the bullish case is they bring Panasonic in here. They help fill out the factory with equipment. They meet their targets. You know, they change the technology, but ultimately get to produce high efficiency modules. They develop a sleek module that gets integrated into the roof, and they might have a higher priced product in an environment where pricing is continues to fall through the floor, but they have a product that is desirable by a larger range of consumers that they can sell in retail outlets. Um, I'm just kind of walking through, I think, the conventional argument in favor of what Tesla and SolarCity are potentially doing here. And so there is an, uh, there is an argument to be made that there is an outlet to save Solar City's manufacturing, and that down the road, three or four years from now, ultimately this investment in manufacturing was a good thing? Uh, no. I think that <laughs> it will always be the case that vertical integration will be a bad thing. So I'm not ever going to spin that. But I think that Solar City and Tesla could be an amazing marriage. I do think that there are millions of people in this country who believe that climate change is real. They also believe that electric vehicles and solar power save them money. And they want a company like Tesla in the same way that everyone flocked to Apple to make everything beautiful and easy for them. And whether that means an integrated roof or whether that just means an integrated website that allows you to do one-click ordering, I don't care. But I think that these guys can put like just jetpacks, you know, pun intended, on selling a crapload more affordable electric vehicles and affordable solar in this country. And I think it's going to be awesome. And it might not be their solar, like they claimed two years ago. Well, that wraps up this segment. I guess the two big questions that we all need to ask that everyone is keeping their eyes on is what happens to the agreement with New York State now that it's bringing in, potentially bringing in a new partner? Because the deal is predicated on Tesla's acquisition of Solar City, And 
also whether Salevo's technology is just written off or whether they hybridize it in some way. Those are kind of the two big uh, questions coming out of this news story. So let's move over to the broader solar bloodbath. I was in San Diego this week for GTM Solar Market Insight Conference, and the mood was really strange there. I had conversations with people all over the sector, and we, you know we had panels on every subject you can imagine, and we captured some pretty high highs and some pretty low lows, and at times it feels like there are more lows than highs. I recommend you go check out Eric Wessoff's story summarizing Shale Khan's intro presentation you know, 2016 being the weirdest market for the weirdest year for solar ever. Um, you know, he's got some interesting data in there that sort of shows this, shows this very conflicting picture for solar. You know, here in the U.S., growth is slowing down now that the investment tax credit urgency has passed. Both utility scale solar and residential solar projects are getting pushed out. Consumers don't have the same kind of urgency. Developers like First Solar and SunPower taking a big development, taking a big hit as development slowed for them. There are worrying signs about the health of companies like SolarCity and Enphase for different reasons. Um, this year, of course, we saw the collapse of Sun Edison and one of America's top solar installers, Varengo. And globally, the, the oversupply of modules is sending suppliers into a panic and raising fears about more bankruptcies. I haven't felt this kind of tension since like 2011, when, when the previous wave of bankruptcies started during the Solyndra days. And... I guess I'll provide a little bit more commentary based on my conversations, but um, Jigger, I want you to weigh in again first here because I want to know your forecast, like partly cloudy, mostly cloudy with a chance of rain. I think exactly the opposite. I think that this is nothing but an extraordinary time for solar. You literally have thousands upon thousands of companies, many of whom are profitable, right? The vast majority of $5 million revenue, $10 million revenue, $20 million revenue solar installers are hugely profitable. They sold customers contracts when solar module prices were 80 cents a watt. They're now buying panels at 40 cents a watt and building them like and pocketing the 40 cents. This is a great time for the solar industry. You've got Hillary Clinton, who's probably going to be president, who basically has made as her signature climate change example. 500 million solar panels on rooftops. I, I just think things are awesome. Yes, the solar industry always has ups and downs. And I think that the module manufacturers are going to be under horrific amounts of margin pressure. I also think that you've got people making stupid decisions like Sun Edison or Varengo. That being said, the Wall Street bankers are more bullish than ever about how much money they're raising for project finance, how much money they're raising for tax equity, how much work they're doing on securitization. The law firms are not laying off anybody. If anything, they're hiring new lawyers every day because the volume of work that they're doing is going way up. This is extraordinary times. Maybe not for the top 30 companies, but for the next 3,000 companies, it's awesome. Yeah, I reached out to Sia, to Tom Kimbas, who is um, leading that group in the interim until they they hire a full-time CEO. And he basically said, look, um, th there, this has been an amazing time for solar. There's strong competition, has driven innovation, lower costs. That means there are tighter margins and consolidations. Um, which is really good for consumers. It makes consumers want to buy solar. The industry has to adapt a little bit, but it's finally suppressed 
surpassed 1% of U.S. electricity generation is closing in on 2%. And SIA expects this year solar will be responsible for the largest amount of new electricity generation across the U.S. So he he is with you, um, Jigger, that this is just the tip of the iceberg. Right. But, you know, let's look at the shale gas industry. Um, would you guys say that, that shale drillers are facing the best of times right now? You don't just, I mean, if these market forces are driving the top 40 companies out of business, you don't just look at that and say, sure, it's great for, you know, the next 100 companies. But like, that's a really bad, that's that's bad for investor interest. It's bad for public perception. Uh, it's bad because a lot of people lose their shirts. So I guess I, I just, I don't know. I, I think that these market forces are a lot darker than we're, we're painting them. You don't compare solar with shale. You compare solar with natural gas. Are these the best of times for natural gas? Abso-freaking-lutely. You're talking about an amazing increase in natural gas utilization. The amount of natural gas-powered electricity in this country is going way up every month. The amount of actually like work going on in LNG and the amount of folks who are investing heavily on exporting that natural gas around the world, way up. The amount of investment by Dow, DuPont, other manufacturers in U.S. manufacturing jobs so that they can actually like utilize that cheap natural gas to make primary imports here instead of importing it from China, way up. So let's talk about solar versus natural gas. It's not solar versus shale drillers. If you want to make a good analogy there, it's man solar manufacturers versus shale drillers. Yes, both are suffering mightily and both probably could have seen it coming. The shale gas guys knew damn well that they were drilling way too much using borrowed money from the Federal Reserve to like do all that stuff. Same with the solar manufacturers. They knew damn well by 2015 that there was going to be a sell-off in 2017, and they still built too much capacity because they thought that's what their investors wanted to do. They made bad decisions. Some people were really well um, managed, like SunPower and First Solar, I think, did a great job of managing how much capacity they brought online and, in fact, have been have been like not expanding as fast as the Chinese guys. So I think they're going to weather the storm. Their profits are going to get hit, but I don't think they're going to go out of business. Yeah, I agree with that refinement to the analogy. I think that's a helpful way to look at it. Um, I will say that the reason why we're you know flooded in solar modules is, is because a lot of the Chinese manufacturers knew that they were overbuilding, but expected the Chinese market to expand dramatically. And the Chinese government hasn't gotten its act together on its feed-in tariff program. There are a lot of bureaucratic hurdles. Development has slowed. So part of the reason, I think from what I'm hearing, a, a big part of the reason is Chinese producers were expecting to de deploy a lot of product into the domestic market there, and now they just don't have that demand. So they're kind of looking to <laughs> deploy product anywhere they can. And man, I am hearing that they are tripping over themselves, offering modules um, with a very low threshold for an agreement for like 35 cents a watt. That's down, that's down from like 53 cents a watt in June. And we're probably looking at 30 cents a watt by the end of the year. It's just nuts. I just look, I think that this goes back to what we talked about during the solar city thing. If you try to be a prognosticator in solar for more than six to 12 months, you're always going to be wrong. Right. And so the manufacturers probably should have taken a more conservative stance. They didn't. They thought that their Chinese, you know, market forecasts were going to be right. 
they made the bad call. It is what it is. It is business. And this is how the private sector works. You have pull-in, you have a lot of the tier two and tier three manufacturers going out of business, and there will be a revival, I'm sure, in like two years. And, and you know, the strong will survive and the weak will go out of business. And I'm okay with that. But at the same time, I'm ecstatic that you've got like the Middle East going to town right now and installing solar. I'm ecstatic that Brazil, even with all of its challenges, is still managing to get solar systems installed and financed. I'm ecstatic that like all this new money from pension funds and insurance companies and sovereign wealth funds are going into solar right now because they think that 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 is a good investment for them. And so I just think that like to say that the solar industry is faced with a bunch of headwinds, I don't see it. I think the solar industry is doing a great job. There are certain parts of the supply chain that are not doing that well. Yeah. And I would say from the policy front that now that the ITC has been dealt with, that there's many more state policies that we're looking at. And and that's also creating an opportunity for new markets. So there are a lot of new markets opening up in the Southeast, in the Midwest. There are also new business practices that are coming to bear, like community solar, corporate PPAs, PERPA contracts are blossoming in a lot of states. So um, on the policy front, I think a lot of this is shifting to the states and that's opening up new markets. And and there's a little bit of disruption going on. So the solar industry is getting a little disrupted by all the DER out there. And I think that's going to cause an, another little bit of kind of settling out of what really are we looking at? Is it going to be net metering or is it going to be some other kind of policy that's really going to help us grow in the states? And and I think that, you know, your reaction, Jigger, and your reaction, Catherine, like the our differing reactions to this is indicative of like how much whiplash we're facing because the good trends are so good and the 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 bad trends are like so nasty for some of the leading companies it's uh you can interpret it a bunch of different ways and we will keep our eyes on the the clouds and the sunshine peeking through those clouds throughout the next year let's move into something you may not know and uh Catherine, you are up first this week what's up sure i have a couple of quick things one is i want to give a huge shout out to a friend of the entire energy gang pat sappensley from new york acre that uh incubator won the premier clean tech incubator awards uh startup supporter of the year by the northeast clean energy council so, so that was great for her she's doing an amazing job and she's working really closely with emily and other incubators too um, and then two other quick things. One is the Department of Interior just opened up 79,000 acres for offshore wind off the coast of New York for auction, which is pretty exciting. And then USDA just awarded $3.6 billion to 82 electricity projects in 31 states. So uh, other agencies are doing a lot for clean energy other than just uh, Department of Energy. Excellent. Jigger, what's your story this week? Well, I think the first story is... Go Cubs. I <laughs> grew up in Illinois and I am just so ecstatic to see the Cubs on their way. You know, it's one to one. I'm not going to jinx it, but it would not be a bad thing if all of our listeners became Cub fans for at least another week. Jigger, do you know who the president was when the Cubs last won the World Series? No. Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> Teddy. <laughs> I did know it was over 100 years, but Teddy Roosevelt, that's crazy. And the man had like a bullet in his chest while he was president or something, right? So, yeah. So I think that's great. I, You know, the other thing I wanted to highlight was that um, 
a lot of folks have been talking about this International Energy Agency report cataloging the rise of renewable energy. According to them, renewable energy finally has sort of beat coal um, uh, this last year, where 28% of the world's electricity came, um, you know, will come from renewables by 2021, and uh, it was 23% last year. Um, the stat that they put in the report, which I thought was great, was that um, 500,000 solar panels were installed every day in 2015. And in China, two wind turbines are now being built every hour. Yeah, those are some impressive stats. Well, I was digging deep this week, um, and I found a really funny story before we got on uh, the call together. I saw this tweet from Silicon Valley recruiter Morgan Misson, who uh, tweeted that her neighbor... Her neighbor's Tesla was tagged with Tesla's after-hours stock price on uh, Thursday morning, you know, sometime in the middle of the night between Wednesday and Thursday. And, of course, after Tesla's quarterly earnings call, uh, its stock price increased by nearly 5%. And someone who was, I don't know, excited or maybe just an ironic Tesla hater uh, spray-painted Tesla's closing stock price on the, this woman's neighbor's Tesla. Just thought that was really funny. And then she said, his other Tesla is okay. Um, that's all I got this week. Nothing major. Fun episode. Uh, boy, there's a lot to talk about right now. Um, and there's a lot to listen to, too. We've got a huge archive. We're at SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, NPR One, um, any podcast app. We are also on Twitter. So make sure to follow us there and send us an email, too. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, on things, you know, happening in the solar industry. Are you an entrepreneur? Have you worked at an incubator around the country? Want to hear what you want us to talk about and your experiences. We're at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Catherine, have a fantastic weekend. Thanks, you too. It's Halloween weekend. Yeah. Are you doing anything special with the kids? Are you handing out candy? Are you dressing up? What are you doing? Yeah, so my kids have aged out. Finally, the last one aged out, although he really Never doesn't want out. to age out. They'll so age he back be... in very quickly. Yeah, I know. He'll be handing, we'll be handing out candy. Jigger, how about you? What What is Dylan going to dress up as? He's going to dress up like Superman because um, it was the only costume we could find that didn't have a uh, uh, a head piece of it because he hates having any hats on. So um, <laughs> all the dragons and other things didn't really, you know, look very good on him. Well, with Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I am Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang. We're a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.